You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Space. Time. Mind. Mind. Space. Time. Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. Oh, well, there wasn't a countdown. No, there never is. I, I'm a little disappointed. So, uh, welcome everybody to Space Time Mind. This is the scientism session. And uh, I'm Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. And with me, as always, my friend and colleague, the undetached Richard Brown part. <laughs> the browniest part of the brown space-time worm. That's me. I'm the browniest part. <laughs> yeah. Um, can well, I I'm, ask pretty, you? I'm pretty attached, actually, though. So I would I would not be an undetached brown part. Right, because you're attached. You're, un- <laughs> you're not detached. Exactly. But I have, a, I have a serious question for you. You ready for it? Yes. Are you now, or have you ever been, a scientism is. <laughs> uh, wow, a scientismologist. Uh, yeah, what I, is... know, I like to call it <laughs> scientismology, the study of scientism. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, you know what? Well, that's the study of scientism, but a, a proponent of scientism the, is a scientismist. I don't I would like to figure out what it is, and then if it is the claim that. Um, is simply identical to methodological naturalism and or empiricism, then yes, probably I am. Uh, if it's someone, if, if which it, in some circles I've heard people say that scientism is the view that we have an irrational faith in science, which is equivalent to faith in God as a creator or something like that, that there's a, a an unjustified belief that science will give us the answers, um, which is similar to the unjustified belief that God has some answers or something. If that's scientism, then no, I don't have that view. Hail science! How about this? So, you know, when I set up the little hangout, I wrote a little tiny definition of science. Oh, you did? And what I wrote, I I mean, I I don't know if it's good, but yeah, I had to write something. (laughs) Everything worth knowing is accessible via the methods of science. Cool. I, okay. Well, you put a plural method, so I like that. Um, I yeah, guess you know psychologists they, and physicists and have different methods. Geologists have different methods, don't they? Or is it yeah. is there just one method? Which is I, the well, scientific I'm not, method? I'm not sure. So first of all, I know. So this is a this. First of all, we have to say what science is, maybe. Yeah. Um, Good luck. 
because you probably mean empirical science, right? Uh, I think that people tacitly assume empirical science when they use the word science, uh, even though yeah. the word science has a broader meaning. So the word you know comes from scantia or whatever the Greek. Um, yeah. I think Aristotle used it to mean any kind of systematic study. When, uh, uh, when, when I teach, philo I used to use this Hempel book um, on philosophy science. So this sweet little book. And he distinguishes between the analytical sciences and the empirical sciences. So the analytical sciences include mathematics and logic. Yeah. I'm tempted to say science. You know what science is? Because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot in connection with a recent hubbub over Tyson, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and some of his like shitty remarks against philosophy. Uh, yeah. And and a lot of this. I mean, came I out don't of, know why they're so shitty, actually. To be honest with you. I'm not you know, sure why he got that blowback. Um, I mean, especially what he said on that podcast was that he was really poo-pooing like Twin Earth shit. I mean, it's really like he said the meaning of meaning. He was criticizing Putnam and the cottage industry that, that grew up around whether there's water on Twin Earth or not. Yeah. And I do think that um, why is that a bad thing to say? Isn't that what you and Dennett and the yeah. – Infinite order, higher order truths about Schmess. Isn't that your line? I mean, <laughs> yeah. But there's this thing I wanted to pick up on that came out of. Uh, so you know, uh, Tyson, um, in defense of that podcast, he said, "If you really want to know what I think about philosophy, you should look at this other thing that I said." And 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 he referred to this um, this uh, debate or whatever. It was a that. thing with him and Dawkins. Yeah, the Dawkins thing, not Krauss, right? Yeah, Dawkins. And one thing that came up with the thing with him and Dawkins, there was a philosopher in the audience, and he's like, well, here's some good things that philosophy has done. Here's some other good things that philosophy has done. And and Dawkins said this thing, and Tyson seemed to agree with it. And it was like, oh, you know what? Those guys are actually scientists. I don't think they mentioned Dennett by name, but they said something like, yeah, there are these philosophers that do all this good, useful stuff, and, and as far as we're concerned, they're scientists. And I decided right then and there that I'm a scientist. Because you know what, what science means. Science is, uh, a scientist is a respectable knowledge haver. And don't you want to be a respectable knowledge haver? Well, what's respectable? Uh, and what's knowledge and what's having? I don't want to be any of those things. Oh, man. You what, don't want to be a respectable knowledge haver? You want to be think, unrespectable? I think we probably don't have knowledge. I'm not sure what respect in this context means. And, uh, well, like astrology is not respectable. Well, well, I think that's an interesting question. Why, why, why you think astrology is not respectable? Why isn't it respectable? I just I thought it was obvious that it isn't respectable. But what if someone thought it wasn't obvious? Um, well, I don't know if I have a good look. I'm part of what I'm trying to say is sociological. So the, yeah, the, 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 that's the, part of the problem with what you're saying. I think though is that. If you're just gonna define what science is as like a, what a group a certain a certain group of people think is cool. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. That can't be what science is. But I think that's what they. I think so, that's what so it, there it, could it, be so, into in the mouth, mouths of these cheerleaders, cheerleaders like Dawkins and, and DeGrasse Tyson. They're saying, maybe. "Yay, rah rah rah." I don't think so. Um, no, this is bad. This is terrible. So you know, this is this is you're you're heading down a, a path which is going to lead you uh, to hang out with Alvin Plantinga, and to believe uh -oh. and to, and to believe that um, you can have unjustified knowledge that God exists because you judge it by the standards of people you think are cool, <laughs> and if and Plantinga <clears throat> and Pills people are constantly going on about when we Christians give these arguments, we use Christian standards of evidence. 
Um, and according to Christian standards of evidence, we know that God exists. And, and so that's, you know, the, uh, the warranted, justified, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, this, um, the, the epistemic basicness of, of belief in God. Now, you don't want to claim that, right? But that's, that's right. basically saying the same thing. That well, let me say a slightly different thing. I think you... Because think that's that, where respect, respectable, that's what the problem with respectable is. Who's res, what's that mean to who? Let me, let me try a slightly different thing. Because okay. I, I think that, that I do work, that is a good slip. I like slippery slope arguments, and I thought that was a good one. Okay. So let me yeah. try a slightly different thing. Um, what it means to call something scientific is actually a kind of empty thing. You're just saying it's good. But there's no, um, th there's no, like, uh, there's no deep analysis or there's no definition that you could give that will allow you to know ahead of time what's good and what isn't good. Yeah. So you, but that's, you, that's true of everything. I mean, so who cares? I, you can't give a definition for anything. Let's remember Refo well, in the 80s. The about, well, uh, definition has failed. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't lean on definitions so much. But, yeah. I mean, you might think that there are such things as analyses or essences or something like that. So if I say that something is water, yeah, there's a whole package that goes along with that. We could discover like uh, whether it's water or not, because it, it's going to have to have hydrogen in it, for for example. Um, and you know, some people have said, uh, in contrast, they've said the words like "true" are just super thin. There's nothing. Right. There's you know, so a lot of people have have criticized the correspondence theory of truth and offered instead a yeah, deflationary theory of truth. Yeah, but I'm not one of those truth. people. I defend the correspondence theory of truth. You, so you think you... Uh, In fact, we call it truth makers nowadays. So I think truth making is important. Okay, um, so I don't want to get in an argument about, about truth, but I just want to... Well, like, we have to because scientific realism is part of the package uh, here, and I think that... But um, let me. I'm just trying to clarify a, a kind of a point in, uh, about uh, science being an empty honorific or deflationism about science. Yeah, and I'm trying to offer a counterargument. It's not empty. <laughs> science aims so, at truth. <laughs> so just to, just to, to build toward an analogy, um, so so you think that you can uh, explain truth? You can explain it in in a, some kind of non-circular way uh, in terms of uh, truth makers um, representations and some kind of relation between the representations and the truth makers. Right. The internal relation, as we call it, and um, the and, and one thing that motivates deflationists is they think that you're not going to be able to do that in any kind of non-circular way. There's there's no way you're going to be able to identify what the what the representations are, what the relation is, and what the what the truth makers are. Yeah. Oh, um, so uh, anyway, you you might be right about how truth shakes out. But there's still this other claim that I'm making about science. I mean, well, I'm, I'm just trying to make a claim conversation about science. But I, but Pete, I was making a claim about science. My my claim was that the norm of science is truth. Um, not not so. Science aims at discovering the way the the truth makers the the, the way the world really is. So um, and not simply. And this is contrasted with a different view in the philosophy of science, which is. The shut up and calculate often motto, which says that the aim of science is simply to construct empirically adequate models, rather uh, than discovering the like way the world really is. Okay, but let me just finish making the the, the claim. It might turn out that you agree with me. I don't. Um, 
<laughs> well, um, so we just start off with the fact that you don't agree with me, and then we'll figure out what it is that I'm claiming. Um, I already know what you're claiming. You're claiming there's no content to, to saying that something is a science other than saying, I like that. Um, well, or I respect that. Or uh, now a, a nearby view might be simply that it's true. So you're not going to get any kind of special truths that are the scientific truths. There's no difference between something being true and it's being a scientific truth. Um, okay. So that would be that would be one version of this empty my, this empty honorific view. This, that it's to say that something is scientific is just an empty honorific. Uh, so when you say that astrology is not a science, you're simply saying I don't like astrology. No, it doesn't. Uh, 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 it doesn't say anything true. It's yeah, true. but what does true mean? It just means I I don't li like it. I'm, 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 for purposes of this conversation, I'm happy. No, dude, look, I shifted. You you I conceded when you gave me the Alvin uh, Goldman argument. Planting a. Uh, yeah, sorry. Whoops. <laughs> the, the bad Alvin, not the good Alvin. <laughs> bad Alvin. Right? So uh, we we just started a new band called the Bad Alvins. <laughs> right. So I'm def I'm I'm defending a slightly different thing because I conceded. Yeah. Uh, in the face of your powerful Plantinga argument. Okay. So. Um, so what's the what's the new different argument now? That that uh, to say that something is. Um, so say that something is scientific is, is not to say anything special about it. You're just saying that it's true. Uh, you're just saying that it's true. So if I say that the Empire State Building is on the corner of 34th and 5th, that's a scientific statement? Yep. Yeah. You're not going to be able to demarcate any kind of special truths as the scientific ones. Um, and and bachelor, I'm going to grant, of course, All bachelors are unmarried males. Yeah, sure. Is, don't you accept that as true? That's a scientific truth. That's what I'm saying now. That it's the calling it. It's redundant to put scientific in front of it. Um. So yeah, that's a so anything. So that's a deflationary theory. Scientific yeah. equals true, and true equals nothing more than reasserting the statement. Well, no, 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 no. I'm not assuming deflationism about truth. I just brought that up to illustrate. This but that's what this amounts to, though. It's a kind of deflationism, although I'm happy to grant, for the purposes of argument, the correspondence theory of truth. Uh-huh. It's but, like your blue so, shirt and the correspondence theory So why would you, shirt. I mean, I don't understand this view or why you would have it, but uh, why would you want to identify science with a body of truths? Um, rather than with a way, I mean, I thought that what we were talking about was epistemology. We're talking about how to know about the world, and now you're saying that science just is the body of truth, all true things about the world. How do we know about those things? Okay, I mean, so I science that was, is, what was that issue. Yeah, science is ambiguous between what is known and the way that you know it, right? There's a scientific. Sometimes when people talk about science, they talk about like what they know, and what you know are truths. Yeah, I was talking about how we know. Uh, fair enough. Um, and the method by which knowledge scientism, I thought, was a view about how knowledge is gained. It's an epistemic view, not a not a like a claim about what what's out there, um, unless unless the two are related, like in truth making theory or something like that. But I mean, the issue is how do you get knowledge? So you how, so empiricism. I mean, this was my original question: is is scientism different than empiricism in any important sense? 
or is or methodological naturalism or are they the same thing? That's um, so if empiricism yeah. is generally the view that all knowledge is, is gained empirically via the senses, and if science is therefore thought of as a refinement of that basic, um, I mean, I don't know, sometimes I, in my, I started thinking that I, in my mind, I, I think Hume in, started this scientism stuff. Is, is this, is this a, I don't know, but I don't know. Is he the one, I mean, because he sort of says, look, we want to use the scientific method in philosophy. Um, if it's not analytic or if it's not empirically, scientifically based, then we burn the books uh, so that the only meaningful questions that are out there are ones that can be answered scientifically. That, those yeah, are, that's, that's what I thought it was that kind of stuff that went with scientism, not simply that you uh, – so, so that when, when, when you are claiming um, – when you say the only way of really knowing about the world is scientifically, you're not merely saying – you know true things, or that that you should only know true things. I mean, so you're you're making a claim about how you get knowledge, and you're excluding things. I would have thought like um, knowledge by rational intuition, knowledge by divine revelation, um, um, knowledge by spontaneous telepathy. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. I, I thought scientism was ruled out, ruling out, namely that there has to be. Uh, I mean, so I don't know. So maybe yeah, this I mean, is part of what I'm not sure what the meaning of the term is. So let's let's consider a contrast between Descartes and Hume. Yeah. Both of these guys are very motivated to uh, <laughs> clear out the bullshit. They feel like there's been a bunch of bullshit that came before them. Yeah. They also love science. They they're you know they're caught up in the in the the scientific revolution and they're major well, fucking architects of it. They love something um, called natural philosophy, isn't it? Is that the same thing as science? Yeah, right. The, people aren't really using the word science back then, but yes. there's this thing, natural philosophy, and now um, Descartes, he's not. He's very explicitly not an empiricist. He's He's got really very interesting arguments against saying that all knowledge just comes through the senses, that there's also this other thing that you need. Um... And uh, that's how you know about the, the, that the wax is one and the same thing, and that's how you know that you have a soul and stuff. You know, now Hume comes along and says, nah, I, I don't think you know all the things you claim to know. But don't they both love science? Aren't they, aren't Descartes, I'm inclined to think that Descartes and Hume are both scientismists. That they, but they disagree about, like, what, you what think the Descartes methods are. You think has endorses scientism um, if you I, I so I yeah this is an interesting question I guess because yeah discourse on method is a uh, um, supposed to be something like a science of reasoning or something or a way to answer questions and it involves a bit of rational a priori reflection a bit of empirical work and a combination yeah. of the two um, and, and, and is trying so, to figure out like how mathematical physics is going to work like what yeah. is math and geometry and what is space and matter and how does that stuff relate so that the mind can know it. So um, That's right, but I mean, so I always thought that the debate between that, that, so the proper debate, so a comparison between Galileo and Descartes is kind of useful in this context because I think Galileo probably had something close to a shut up and calculate mentality. Um, whereas Descartes didn't. Uh, so in Galileo, you get the feeling that, you know, he's very impatient with a priori 
um, pronouncements about the way reality is. That you know, for instance, you know, one of Aristotle's famous um, problems was that you know heavier objects will fall faster than lighter objects. He thought that was obvious. It didn't need to be tested. He sort of could tell by thinking about it. Um, and then the other one that I love about from Aristotle, which gets less attention and made fun of, but which is equally funny, is that he, he had this idea that the, um, the 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 speed of an object was inversely proportional to the density of the medium that the thing is falling through. So that the denser the medium, the slower it goes, and that makes some kind of common sense sure. um, yeah. because it, something will fall slower. Through molasses than it will through water, right. but then Aristotle turned around and used that as an argument um, against the vacuum, uh, because if there were empty space, truly empty space, then there would be no resistance. And if speed were inversely proportional to the density, and if the density was zero, then speed would be infinite. And he said that's like nothing, things can't go infinitely fast. So therefore. <laughs> From this, I conclude there is no vacuum. And see, that's the right response. You get this kind of laughable a priori pronouncement that there is no vacuum um, from this kind of common sense um, view about the way objects around us behave. And and so the Galileos of the world, I have always felt felt like, look, that's what happens when you do when you go into your room and you think about stuff instead of going and poking at the world. And of course, the Cartesian response to this was that. Well, but look, you know, you don't know if you're in a dream. You don't know if this is the matrix. And so, if you're going and poking at the world, um, it could be all a waste of time because if you live in inception and you're merely studying dream objects or objects created by the evil genius, which merely are, you know, don't have any like real natures to them, but are merely, you know, figments, then rolling things downhill and timing them is kind of a waste of time. So that to do science, you first have to prove that you aren't in a dream. Whereas Galileo's thought, look, that's stupid. Just go and measure things and figure out how the world works. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so now, which one is really doing science there? I, I think that in the 17th century, the idea is that philosophers are off in their room trying to prove the existence of the external world, and that's kind of stupid. And that the scientists are making progress, and um, then you get Hume coming up and saying, look, the way we make progress is making philosophy more like empirical science. Um, and, so yeah. that the, and that the Descartes stuff is stupid, and that we're, it's a waste of time to try to prove the existence of the external world. But that's what philosophy—that's where philosophy leads you to. If you're doing this a priori stuff, you get stuck in this in this infinite loop of how do I refute skepticism? Holy shit, skepticism! Fuck skepticism! Oh my god, skepticism! And then you're not doing anything about learning about the way the stuff out there's put together. So why isn't so in that sense then? All the stuff that Descartes worried about um, is a, is is secondary to this this obsession with skepticism, which just seemed like a waste of time. What about mathematics? Yeah, I love mathematics. <laughs> what about it? <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's well, a uh, can I can I you want me to say something about mathematics? Can I can I say something about it? Um, yeah. So I'm of two minds about mathematics. Uh, one of them is that um, when it comes to simple arithmetic, that that's probably an innate, evolved mental faculty. And I think maybe there's some experimental evidence that we're pretty good at doing simple at arithmetic up to a certain point, and then it gets iffy. Um, and I'm not talking about formal stuff. I'm just talking about counting and you know 
um, baby looking time stuff so that if you have one object go behind the screen and another one go behind the screen, the baby expects there to be two objects behind the screen instead of one, you know, three or whatever. So I, I think that kind of stuff is interesting and that it, um, and that what I think about it is that Mill kind of had an, an interesting idea and his idea was that these things are just very well confirmed empirical hypotheses so that when you say that one plus one equals two, that's a statement, that's an empirical hypothesis about the physical world, not an analytic definitional statement, but an act, it's like saying um, that objects accelerate at the same rate or that they don't. It's making a claim about physical reality um, that you always are going to get this thing coming out to be true. Uh, and so it's like a law of physics and some maybe. I mean, that sounds weird, but I think something like that might be in the ballpark. And um, it's extremely well confirmed. It's one of the most, uh, it's almost uh, as well confirmed as the simple identity statement, A equals A. I mean, I, which I would also say is an empirical um, hypothesis that has been extremely well confirmed. And so from there, I would say, well, then you can build axiomatic systems from those empirical generalizations, and that's what logic really is. It's an axiomatization of things that are empirically confirmed. And, and I get this line basically from Michael Devitt, who, you know, Michael Devitt, he says, look, in response to Quine, because, you know, Devitt, one of the things I like about Devitt is he basically tries to, like, um, to take Quine but not become crazy. Uh, and so Quine said, look, there's no good distinction between the analytic synthetic that's not empirically beholden. Um, and and Devitt says, that's right, but that here's what that means. So take an, an, a statement that's analytically true, like all, all vixens are female foxes. Um, what that really means is all A's are A's and because you can, you can replace vixen, um, you can replace synonymous terms there and you get all vixens are vixens or all female foxes are female foxes. And so you reduce that to a simple statement of of a logic a equals a or all a's are a or um, you know some of something of that sort and and then that itself is an empirical hypothesis which has just been extremely well confirmed but could possibly be disconfirmed um, and so in that sense uh, mathematics and logic are empirically grounded and empirically based. So uh, and I'm, a, I'm I'm very attracted to that view. Now again, uh, please. Be in, bear in mind that as far as I'm concerned, all of my beliefs are conditional and that I say, yeah, if this is, I mean, I can make sense of this view. So I'm not saying I have this view. I'm saying it makes sense to me and I don't think there's anything absurd or contradictory about it. And, um, you know, I would defend it against people who say it's wrong. So we, we need to pause for a break. But when I come, when we come back, I want to go back to Galileo Descartes argument. Uh, are you habitually using drugs, stimulants, alcohol? No. No, just asking. Are you, Alice, menstruating right now? What has that got to do with it? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Well, welcome back. <laughs> so, um, the, the way I was hearing your characterization of the, the Descartes-Galileo debate, it, it goes something like this. Um, there's these two kinds of methods. One of... One, one body of method is like a priori method. You just sit in your room and you think about stuff while stroking your beard. And the other kind of method is um, well, actually I thought that you did it in your pajamas in front of the fire, like Descartes says in the meditations. But yeah, you don't have a beard, uh, <laughs> no, no rational intellect. Um, <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah, so you've got to buy a beard uh, if you can't grow one. Um, okay. 
But uh, the other method is uh, the empirical method. You, tr you trust your senses. And, um, and but it's not just that you just trust your senses. You trust um, repeated experiment and uh, that kind of stuff. Like so, it's it's formalized yeah. senses. Well, that's fine. But um, but the but the way I was hearing the argument is like, look, just ask yourself which of these two methods seem to have been more productive. The the empirical one, like holy fucking shit. Yeah. Just all this great stuff that seems like uncontroversial, blah blah blah. Maybe we're in a dream. Come on, it's awesome. You a priori guys, you aren't really. What have you got? You're like not sure whether the soul exists. I mean, you can't agree about whether God exists. And so I said, what about math? And the reason I brought that up is because it looks like on the face of it that um, that there's a, actually a bunch of a priori stuff that seems pretty solid. So maybe uh, what you might call metaphysics, pure metaphysics, is just right. No one can agree on whether God exists or not, or whether free will exists or not, but there's all this other a priori stuff yeah. that seems like pretty pretty rock solid. Yeah, but I've made the claim that, so, uh, I've made the argument that that a priori stuff is really empirically hostage. Uh, so it's not fully a priori. It's based in the way the world is, and it could be falsified or refuted by the, how the world might be later. Well, let's say everyone agrees that, about the correspondence theory of truth, Richard. Let's just grant that. So, of course, uh, yeah, uh, if it's it. going to be true, it's going to be based on the way the world is. But the, the contrast was a contrast between methods. So you say, following Quine, and you know I'm going to be sympathetic to this, that it's but, going but, to be... But, but, but hold on, Pete. Wait, That's what? too fast. No, 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 no. So based on the way the world is discoverable empirically, not discoverable uh, in some other method. So that based right. on... Based on the world, it means like you know you could do an experiment that would confirm or disconfirm it, or provide evidence for or against it. So um, you say that the the so-called a priori stuff is going to be beholden to the empirical stuff. We could have empirical. I think it's possible we could have empirical disconfirmation of one plus one equaling two, or of mathematical induction. Which can you know I was thinking about mathematical induction this morning actually because I was um, thinking about Euclid's proof of infinite primes, you know, which is one of the most famous proofs in mathematics. It's the one that gets trotted out in the intro classes all over the universe. Um, and it's elegant, you know, and the way I like the way Euclid actually originally presents it in the elements um, uh, it, it's, it, it, in terms of line segments. It's interesting. I like, I like ancient mathematics. But anyway, um, mathematical, I mean, this, maybe I should, you would, maybe well, I should let me, can I go back to the thing I was trying to say? Yeah, I'm trying to refute the thing you're trying to say, though, so they're related, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, the thing I was trying to say is that w why not see that the empirical stuff is beholden to the a priori stuff? So, How would uh, that work? Well, wh I mean, what is, some of the, what is some of the stuff that looks like it's solid? I mean, what's the best stuff that the a priorist can offer? Modus ponens? For, yeah, so um, that kind of stuff. If you're gonna if you're gonna go do some uh, if you're gonna go do some empirical science, right? You're gonna go take your senses and go out in the backyard and, and start getting some knowledge. You can't just blow off modus ponens. Absolutely, you're, you're not but gonna have anything solid. Is an empirical hypothesis that can be confirmed or disconfirmed by the way the world turns out. <laughs> but tomorrow it might turn out that it's not valid anymore. But the way the world turns out as given to the senses. Yep. We could do an experiment. 
Yeah, I'm having a hard time defending this view. <laughs> uh, but so you let know, me let me. You know whose so, team I'm on. I know, but and I really am on the team. I'm. I mean, I'm on both teams. I'm not on a team. Um, I'm simultaneously, indeterminately, superimposed as between all teams that are not contradictory. So here's the here's the way I was trying to mount an argument against that the view that the world is beholden um, to 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 the a priori stuff and not vice versa. Um, excuse me. Yeah, that the that the that the a priori stuff is beholden to the world. So and, and I was trying to use yeah, mathematical. I, I think it's really distracting. You keep saying to the world when you're talking about the senses. Yes. You mean the way, beholden to the senses? To the way the world is revealed through the senses. Um, the 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 view that I'm trying to defend is the is the view that the only way to know about the world is by experience, um, and that the most perfect kind of experience is that embodied by science, empirical sciences. Um, so that that's the claim that I'm trying that I would defend. Uh, so the way the world turns out to be, I mean, as revealed by empirical sciences, um, which you know is political science and empirical science. I don't know. Is economics and empirical science? Geez, fucking a, no, probably not. But who knows? So um, uh, that I, so if that's distracting, then I'll say then you know that's what I mean is as revealed through the empirical sciences. Right. Because um, so a think mathematical Platonist thinks they're talking about the world. No, they don't. Yeah, uh, no. it's the world. It's that which exists, and it's got the a bunch the of natural worlds. Um, so uh, the. I'll take mathematical induction, and, and we can go back to arithmetic if you want, but I like the mathematical induction example because I think it's illustrative of, a, of something that mathematicians do that. Maybe it's cheating. Uh, who knows? So mathematical induction takes the following form. So you want to prove something about all the natural numbers. Well, who's got the time to do that? <laughs> There's a lot of them. So what you do is you, uh, you prove it about one, um, like and the zero or one is typically you do it. You, know, you start with something simple. Um, and then you do it for an arbitrary one, and you show that it, this arbitrary one implies that it holds for the one right after it. So if it's true of n, it's also true of n plus 1. And then those two together are taken to imply that it holds for all the natural numbers. So that's, math, that's you know, a rough way of thinking about what mathematical induction is. Um, and then you start to say, well, gee, does the riddle of induction uh, apply to mathematical induction? And then, so for instance, does Hume's puzzle apply to this as well, and the response you can get from mathematics, from mathematicians is, no, 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 because it's not really induction in the sense of an inductive argument. This is an axiom. <laughs> this is a rule of inference that tells you if you can do these two things, then you're allowed to infer it for all the natural numbers, and that's not really induction. That's deduction. We, this is a formal thing. And so that seems to me like a, a thing that logicians and mathematicians do a lot, which is what they want. If they want something, they simply call it an axiom and import it. And Kripke yeah. does this all the time. I learned this from Kripke reading his work. He was like, "Oh, it really would be nice to get rid of the Barkin formula, but we can't do this. So I know what I'll do. I'll make this an axiom. Boom." And they do that a lot. The axiom of choice is kind of this way. I mean, there's a lot of axioms which you know they kind of go, "It would be nice if we had this. Let's just make it an axiom." Right. Um, but but the so what justifies the axiom, um, the right. of mathematical induction? Why why should I conclude? So to put it in terms that I was saying it earlier from the um, uh, the uh, Euclid case, why should I conclude 
that because I can, from any finite list that I can come up with of prime numbers, there's always going to be a prime number which isn't in that list. And then Euclid kind of goes, oh, and therefore um, there are infinitely many. Well, why should we think that? Um, this, because we think if it holds in these cases and if we prove it holds in those other cases, then we can in infer that it holds in all of them. That's something we learn from experience. That's, a, that's an inductive principle which gets formalized in second-order logic as, the, um, as, as mathematical induction. So that's the kind of story that I'm trying to tell yeah. is that these things which seem a priori, that seem fancy, really are just um, uh, have their roots in the experience we have in the world, and they get their credibility from that. Uh, and that's why we can go and then do Cantor stuff and and do all kinds of fancy stuff, but it's all connected to uh, empirical stuff. And if the world were different, um, if we didn't have good reason to trust induction in, in empirical stuff, we wouldn't have a good reason to believe in this uh, uh, axiom of mathematical induction. And so uh, that's what. So that's how I think it's connected to the world. And then this is the way David Rosenthal has argued for it. You know, you you were you in that coin? Did you sit in on that coin class? Yeah. So you yeah. know the argument about the sheep. Yeah. What do you think of that? Oh, you asking the real Pete Mandic or the one that's trying to fight you well, first, on this? Yeah. First, you want to say what that what the argument was supposed to be, and then be be will the real Pete Mandic please stand up? Okay. <laughs> My recollection of the sheep argument is that um, if you were uh, if you were a shepherd and you're counting sheep, and um, you know you. 23 sheep plus 10 sheep, and instead of winding up with 33 sheep, you wound up with 34 sheep. Uh, and you did yeah. this, and this happened over and over again. You might revise what you thought was true about arithmetic. That's right. Yeah, that's the, correct. the way the argument goes. Like that's if, exactly it. But it, you have to it has under to a be certain used. series of experiences, you would just cave in and say, "Yeah, fuck arithmetic. I was wrong about the way arithmetic goes." You wouldn't stick to your guns and say, no, "I guess." Look, the sheep. There must be something going on with sheep. Right. You wouldn't say that one plus you know, t uh, t twenty-three plus ten was, or whatever it was. I forget what your example was. Um, you wouldn't say, "Oh, it's true for everything but sheep." <laughs> um, but it has to be wide, widespread, confirmed by multiple independent sources. Yeah. So it, there are some stipulations in there about it's not just a one-off thing or something like that. But so, I think what's nice about that argument is it's an a priori argument. About that's supposed to show us that mathematics itself depends on this continued empirical justification. You think the Rosenthal argument is an a priori argument? I think all of Rosenthal's arguments are a priori. It's just he calls them, um, you know, folk psychology. To I hear, I hear the argument is making a claim about what we would do, and it's an empirical. It's actually an empirical prediction about what people would do in response to the, to the sheep. Yeah, empirical predictions are a priori claims. I mean, at least in the sciences, they use a priori in that way. Uh, I guess in, in philosophy, we use it to mean like something that's not based on any kind of empirical experience. So, I, yeah, I, I guess I but, switch back and forth between so, them. So uh, I want to get back to fighting you, but just to be uh, the real Pete Manic for a second. Yeah. What I think about the sheep argument is um, that if we, if we wanted to, we could stick to our guns and say, you know what, we like arithmetic better. And uh, so there must we got to revise what's going on with the sheep. But but so it, it's, there must I, be. Is, is if we got to look for some force. Maybe sheep have a certain force 
that allows them to reproduce once you've got 33 that there's so we could do that or we or you know we could if we wanted to we could go re revise arithmetic that we often get these choices and sometimes we choose to to save one thing and yeah. sometimes we choose uh, but you know what drives those choices is empirical results. So okay, so now I want to go back to fighting you. But but hold on. So let me just say the empirical thing because I think you see something like this actually happening in in the development of quantum mechanics, and that you get the double slit experiment, uh, which seems fantastic in the sense of truly like unbelievable, incredible in the literal sense of that word. Not that you can't believe the results that you're getting. Yeah. And then you have all these people trying to revise and do stuff, and they do experiment after experiment. They revise it. They tweak it. What are, under these conditions, under those conditions, in that laboratory at this altitude, under the sea? What if we're eating bacon while we do it? What I mean, they, they try every – and it's always the same. And that's when they start going, oh, okay, well, look, it's not simply a matter of us choosing or not. This may be something deep about the world. And I think so if, if it's just these 10 sheep and whatever that you're counting – then yeah, you, you have those choices. If you do 20 years or 60, in our case, 70 years of experiments, um, and you're getting the same results over and over, then you, you say, okay, enough's enough. Well, we still don't know what to say about the double split thing, though. The double split, yeah. Double um, split. Well, we do know what to say about it. Uh, we know that what to say is that you can't explain it away, and, and you know we don't know what concepts to, to use or anything like that. But you have to, you take the data, and then you try. The data is that you get this pattern of results. Now we've never had that with mathematics, but um, I guess I don't know. What, what do you think is settled about the slit? What's settled is the data, right? Yeah, that you get like the interference pattern when you have um, super uh, well replicated experiment. There's no doubt about what the data is at this point. That's what you're saying is. Yes, okay. that, and that the data that itself that basically and you know you quantum erasers and you can do you can do anything you like and come up with really weird versions of this stuff and you still get the basic pattern of data which is that knowing which path the thing takes changes the outcome and, and switches you back and forth between the interference pattern and non-interference pattern um, and that what matters is knowing which path the, the, the thing takes. That, I think, is the data. Uh, I don't know how much knowing has to do with it, but maybe this is not important. Um, well, measure, yeah, measuring. But it's yeah. not even measuring, okay. I think, because some versions... But we, you know what? When, one of these days, when we have future guests on and we talk about quantum mechanics instead of scientism, we'll talk about this because I think some versions of the quantum eraser suggest that it's purely knowing rather than measuring. I think you can get versions of it where you measure it and you don't get the thing because you destroy the information. And so there can't okay. be be interesting. So let me go back to uh, Evil Pete. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm stroking my beard, that means it's a priori time. Um, but, you know, so what is it that you empiricists are opposing? What, what do you think you're against? What methods are you are you saying are bad methods? Because, Here's what I'm against. Because well, you're absorbing everything in, in a way that makes it look like the empty honorific view is true. No. Uh, here's what I'm against. Um, I'm against necessity. I say uh, modus ponens could be empirically disconfirmed. I say 1 plus 1 equals 2 could be empirically disconfirmed. But I also say it hasn't so far. 
And so what I'm objecting to, I'm not saying modus ponens is not a valid argument for him. I think it is valid. Um, I'm not saying one plus one doesn't equal two. I think it does. It's true. What I'm, what I'm objecting to is a claim that it's necessarily true and that, and even more, that we know that it's necessarily true or even to make it more to the point that there is some faculty or ability or um, uh, something which allows us to know which things are necessarily true and, and which things are merely contingently true. It seems like there's two important things here. One is a, uh, the faculty and the other is what is allegedly known via the faculty. A lot yeah. of this debate has been about faculties, yeah. whether the faculties are sense ultimately grounded in the senses or whether there's some um, extra thing, this non-sensory rational intellect uh, that is important for knowledge. But, but then there's this other thing which has to do with the, the truths that are known regardless yeah. of the faculty um, and are there the truths necessary truths. So you yeah. think... As far so far as far as truths go, you think that there's nothing that's necessary. I think well, it's possible there... that there's nothing that's necessary. <laughs> you know, I once were, I once I, I once thought about this and wondered: Is can you know a priori that there are no necessary truths? <laughs> and then, of course, the, the, you can give a simple reductio of that claim: No, you can't, because if there are no necessary truths, then that seems like itself it might be a necessary truth. <laughs> uh, can it be only contingently true that there are no? I don't know. So, I, you know. It's in some versions of this. I think you just get actualism um, that there all there is is the actual world and the things that are true of it, and that they're all contingently true um, in the sense that they every one of them could have been different uh, or could be different. Yeah, how do you get actualism and, and contingentalism to fit together? Um, There's well, no other you, possibility. If if actualism is true. Yeah. The only possible world is the actual world. There's only one possible world. And so there's yeah. only one way things possibly could have been is no. a very tempting conclusion from that. Um, well, that, that, well I, don't, I don't feel that temptation because um, the way that things could have been is simply grounded in or flows from the way that they are. That's all that, the, that actualism says is that, um, that, that uh, what's possible is simply rearrangements of things that are actual. Okay, so the truth, so the truth makers are these, uh, some kind of combinatoric thing, right? Yeah. Well, the this is why this is why the... people like Armstrong. This is why the Australians are so into mirology. <laughs> that I mean, not I mean, I'm like, their truth I right? So the <laughs> issue is, who can, so actually, P. How is that consistent with possibly not P? What are the truth makers going to be if there's only one, only one possible world? Um, well, you know, the, the, you don't get truth makers for negative truths, maybe, or you know, some people say that you know you can have totality statements, like um, uh, you know what that Chalmers calls T that he uses in PTQI. If you know that famous abbreviation from him, that you know Chalmers thinks that you can know all, the, or that it seems reasonable to say that you can know all the truths from some limited set of truths that involve the physical truths given by microphysics. Um, the qualitative truths given by what it's like to be me and you and so forth, um, uh, the, the indexical truths uh, and temporal truths, uh, and so that you can infer from those a bunch of the, the PQTI. P, P, the T is the totality clause which says that's all that there is. 
Um, so that might give you the negative truths. If you know that you know this set of things is all that there is, then you can infer from but, from that that there couldn't that these things aren't or so forth. But you know, um, but tell me in a look. I'm a simple man. Let's do yeah. a simple example. So you're not wearing a red <laughs> shirt right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, you're wear actually you're wearing a blue shirt. But you could have worn a red shirt. Is and it's possible that you. Uh, I could have shirt. worn a red shirt. Yes, absolutely. And so, what makes that true? What makes it true that 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 modal claim that possibly Richard uh, is wearing a red shirt? What makes that true is going to be some myriological thing made out of red shirts. That's the truth maker. Yeah, and me. You, you plus redness and sh plus shirts. Or yeah. Something like that. Okay, yeah, I get you know, it. that. Yeah, and so that's you know that might that's why I said it connects to Russell uh, in the Armstrong version of it because you get these propositions or facts which are kind of like abstract objects, um, and uh, that's kind of what these things are all related to. But then, how do you interpret abstract objects? I don't know. You know, um, Armstrong has this interesting thing where he says, "Well, what's a number?" <laughs> and he says, "I don't know. Maybe a number is just a set of all brain states that that of people thinking about numbers or stuff." And I think that's an interesting idea. Um, so that you can build classes or sets of these things, and you know, uh, and this is just nominalism or something, you know. So let's let's go back to where we left off, right? Okay. So you don't like uh, necessary truths. You don't think any truths are necessary truths. I think it's possible that there are no necessary truths. Um, but now, suppose I said, I, okay, Richard, you can have that, but how about the faculty? Why not? Why not say that there's um, an extra? In addition to empirical faculties, there are extra empirical faculties. Um, I do think that there are that reason is a kind of extra empirical faculty, um, but I think that reason is uh, empirically based, so that all truths of reason are empirical truths. Uh, in, 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 but in what sense? In the sense that they depend on. Um, empirical confirmation or disconfirmation for their status as true, um, that they get their truth from from the way the world empirically turns out to be or not be. The way it's it's accessed by the senses? The way well, we, that we could prove it wrong empirically. I mean, that's the central claim that uh, rationalists want to deny, I think, that they think that there is a kind of... Um, there is a kind of knowledge that's not revisable in or even not even in the category of being... Uh, subject to being revised by empirical um, empirical hostage. But or, see, this, me, seems, this seems to be switching to the metaphysics and away from the the method. It, this doesn't seem to be so much about the faculty; it's about the necessitism. It's the claim is that the the empirical method could never offer evidence against or for these claims. That's the thing that. Um, the faculty, the faculty is supposed to give us access to something that the empirical that can never, that can't be, can't be uh, attacked or supported by the empirical faculty. That's the thing I'm challenging, or would challenge. Yeah, uh, that seems like this. That sounds to me that it's not really about the faculty; it's about the the issue of revisability. Yes. Or, uh, yeah, it's does the faculty give you access to something that the empirical stuff doesn't? Does it tell you this is what Descartes thought that it tells you necessary truths, which are eternal and immutable about the way the world is? And even people like Bonjour and these more cautious um, uh, rationalists nowadays, who who admit that um, um, that these uh, rational intuitions are defeasible 
because you have to admit that given the parallel postulate disaster. Yeah. <laughs> and and other disasters maybe like um you know uh, the liar paradox perhaps and 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 you know one of my favorite ones is Curry Curry's paradox and there's a lot of interesting uh, you know Sorites paradox. So anyway, yeah. there's a lot of a lot of reason to think that um, uh, that 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 this a priori shit has to be at least defeasible. But then they say, oh yes, but at least it's it's only defeasible by further reasoning. You see, not by empirical results. And what gets defeated if that really shows that it wasn't a priori knowledge. And and the, but there's a special kind of a priori knowledge which is not defeatable in that sense. And that's given to us by this faculty. And of course, there are different versions of it. it could be a faculty. It could be innate. It could be innate, like Descartes thought. Could be due to innate concepts. Um, I think the faculty one is is the most uh, reasonable version of this. But the claim is not just that there's a faculty that gives us something interesting. It's that the faculty is detached from and immune to the empirical issues. And they that they say like how could you know one plus one equal two ever be revised in the light of empirical evidence? That's that's what the yeah. that's what the issue is. And even David Chalmers, you know, um, in his book Constructing the World, which recently came out, he he takes Quine on, and he has this paper in the Journal of Philosophy too, which is just an excerpt of that chapter. But he takes Quine's revisability argument on because I think he takes that as one of the main challenges to rationalism as well. Or um, and he says, look. Really, what revisability shows is that, and 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 the and so take the example, uh, Putnam's example, you know, which I never had the right intuition with Putnam examples but about whatever. the Martian cats. Yeah, Martian cats, dude, fucking Martian cats. So um, we find out that cats are Martian robots, and then we revise our concept that all cats are animals to say no, they're not, um, and that's empirically discovered. So therefore. Boo analyticity, and and Chalmers says, well, actually, what that shows is that there was a concept, cat E, which was empirically held hostage, but there's another concept, cat M, which we can know about a priori, and so that he thinks that what this stuff really just shows that there are different concepts that we can have here, and that there's going to be a re a residue that's not revisable, and he uses. You know, this is this front-loading argument that he gives in the book where he says, look, you take anything you like that you think you need empirical evidence for and you upload it or front-load it into the antecedent of a conditional. Um, if all this empirical evidence, then the world turns out that way. And he says, well, that conditional seems like it can be known a priori and that it's not revisable. And therefore, um, uh, you, you're going to have some unrevisable special thing that only reason tells you about. And I, I want to... Go I gotta ahead. say, I can't, I can't take it anymore. I can't be. Your, your <laughs> what? Uh, but maybe yes, I'm a, a I, friend I you don't want to have. I killed because uh, you know what I'm. Would you say? I killed evil Pete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 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 what replaces him might be even worse. Oh no! <laughs> you know, don't touch it. It's pure concentrated evil. <laughs> it's willism. I hear. Oh, good God. I hear these uh, these guys like Chalmers saying like oh there's still this other thing that that it won't ever be revised, and I hear them as saying like you know what we're not going to revise it, man you can't you're not the boss of us we're not going to revise it, and uh, and I just hear that as like okay so they refuse. Well, he actually gives an could, argument that it's not revisable though. What, what, the, argument, the, the argument goes as follows: take any evidence that you would think would cause you to revise it. 
Now add that to the conjunct, which is the antecedent. Now that thing, think about it. Is it revisable or not? If it's revisable, then think about the evidence that would cause you to revise it. It's either in the conjunct, or if it isn't, add it into the conjunct. And so by doing this over and over again, he thinks you're ultimately going to get to some conditional statement, which is not revisable and knowable a priori. I think you so can always not... choose. Can we, we should get, get some more details in there um, about how the argument goes. I'm not sure if listeners are following exactly how the argument goes. So, right, so uh, the, the initial thing that seemed like it was uh, analytic is that all cats are, are animals, right? Yeah. And then we discover uh, that these things that we've been calling cats are actually robots from Mars. Yes. So how, how is the Chalmers argument supposed to go with this specific example? Then you build that information into uh, a con the conditional statement. If the, if the world is like this, such that, blah, 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 then it turns out that cats are not animals, and that's knowable a priori. It's, and in fact, that's what they—that's what Putnam does. He gives this kind of like a priori argument, so that there's still something that seems a priori knowable there. Oh, you know, okay. we have to—we have to take a, uh, a quick break. <laughs> but when we come back, we're going to talk about two kinds of analytic truths. <laughs> um, Ladies and gentlemen, may I present for your intellectual and philosophical pleasure. The creature. Please. Remain in your seats, I beg you. We are not children here. We are scientists. Never, that never gets old for me. I'm always going to laugh at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you like bad jokes. It's true. I like them too. You know, you want to know what the worst, you, want, you like bad joke? Here's the worst joke of all time. You ready? Yeah. What do you call an elephant on a train? What? A passenger. <laughs> I told you it was a bad joke. Like, what did the grape say when the elephant st stepped on it? <laughs> uh, nothing, because grapes don't talk. No, nothing. It just let out a little wine. Oh, well, that's actually kind of funny. <laughs> that, well, then I, I, I take it back. I take it back. You know, I speaking <laughs> of jokes, I specialize in bad philosophical humor as well. You know, I have these, uh, you know, 
philosophical your mama jokes that I wrote a long time ago, but which are um, just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> terrible things. They're awesome, but yeah, anyway, let's get back to doing philosophy. Um so uh so uh, I've discovered that these things are Willism. These things what that I've been you calling Willism is <laughs> of, of what are you speaking? Willis. <laughs> Willismist. Um, uh, look, you know, so, you know who else was a Willist was uh, Sartre in the end. Um, yes. And he he it comes and this might be what science what you this might be the bad thing that scientism is accused of is that it comes down to faith maybe will maybe that's like what you're saying uh, and what blind faith or hope or just I want it to be so or something like that. So Sartre was pushed. Um, into this position by people asking him, look, why should I be logical? What if I choose, I'm radically free, right? What if I say fuck logic, yeah. like, you know, like you and Eric Switchable, and I become yeah. uh, uh, just a switch game, <laughs> and I just say fuck it, you know, logical pluralism, screw it. Uh, well, Sartre said, yeah, I don't know, I guess I would have to say that you choose to be logical or you choose to be rational, and just yeah. the way you choose to, 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 to not to be logical or to choose to get, to get angry. Um, I say no. Uh, uh, uh. So reason right. is normative, um, and that this is—it's not descriptive. It's normative. It tells you how you should reason. It tells you how you ought to think. Uh, modus ponens is not simply a description of a pattern of reasoning. It is a command. Reason thus, <laughs> it says, and um, that command. Uh, is that order of reason, that, that imperative, um, what it means to be rational is to recognize the imperative force of those commands. Reason is itself defined in those terms. It's but, not a choice that you can make. It is an order which you are compelled to obey and but, which you ought to obey. But they're not necessarily true. But they're not necessarily true. Or look, I'm of two minds. Like I said, I'm of two yeah. minds. It could turn out that it's false, but we have no reason to believe that. You know, this is again a, to bring it back to Quine. Uh, some people say that Quine changed his mind um, about revision of logic in his later days because he wrote this paper where he said, "Look, you know, there's no good reason to revise logic." And you know, um, as far as we know, you know, this is the uh, the first order logic is what is that famous quote of his where he says. Um, First order logic is beautiful or something. Let's not fuck it up with higher order logic or something. Or it's uh, it's. I'm drawing um, a blank. Anyway, so so he, he Quine says basically there's no good reason to get rid of the law of non-contradiction or modus ponens. Um, keep them at the center of the web. And so some people say, ah, oh, well, you know, look at that. Even Quine says these things aren't revisable. And no, that's total misreading of Quine. What he's saying is there's no good empirical reason to think that we need to revise those things, even yeah. if. He, we believe that there could be empirical reason to revise it. That doesn't mean there's good reason to do it now. These things are true. They're, they correctly describe uh, the way we ought to reason uh, because the world is the way that it is. Um, that, so that the normative thing connects to the descriptive thing in, in a way that all good naturalists cross the is-ought barrier. Uh, but um, that does, so just because they aren't necessarily true doesn't mean they aren't true right now. They are true, and they do provide us good reason <laughs> to to obey those commands. They 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 they, uh, 
this is the Kantian point. I don't want to devolve into a, again a oh, friendly AI discussion, but what, what what Kant's point is is that re, what it means to be rational is to feel the force of the commands of reason. What it means to be ethical is to feel the force of the commands of ethics. But they get their force from the same place. But so it's not a choice. It can't be a choice. You can't. You cannot choose. Um, to be rational, you must what? be rational. You ought to be rational. I could choose to be irrational. It, Look, and I it won't not, be a, not rationally. <laughs> I could choose to be unethical. Right, right, right. I can't choose. <laughs> if, if you're right, I could. I could choose to be unethical. Right. I just yeah. can't. I can't just. I. But what I can't do. But it's on a choice view, you ought not to make. Yeah, but what I can't do on your view is choose to make something ethical that isn't. Yeah. It's an empirical fact whether it's ethical or not. Yeah, right? and it's an empirical fact where it's rational or not. And right. uh, you ought to be rational. And so it's a command of re it's a command of. Wait a you, I ought to be rational. Yeah, it's normative. It's a normative claim. That's what I just said. They're united in the in the normativity, ethics and reason. Um, it's ethical to be rational. It's irrational to be ethical. Yes, no, they, they are the same. Yes, they're the same. Re, what it mean, you you ought to be rational. There's a what that's that's what it means to say reason is a normative enterprise. It it makes claims about how you ought to be, and it's wrong not to be that way. It's bad. <laughs> that's normativity. Yeah. So if you could choose to be irrational if you want, but there'll be no good yeah. reasons for doing so, and you'll oh, be yeah. and you'll be to blame. And you'll Have be you doing for doing it. Have you tried it? Being well, rational. I haven't tried eating shit either, but you know, I, I don't think that's a, bad, a problem for me. <laughs> I have good reasons not to try it. <laughs> uh -huh. but look, so look, my, my, I don't want to get distracted. My point was simply this, that even though I, do, I doubt that it's necessarily true, I have no doubt that it's actually true. And I also have further no doubt um, that uh, there's any reason on the horizon that's going to cause me to doubt it. So I feel like it's an empirically, it's well confirmed. It's as confirmed as the theory of gravity. It's con as confirmed better than the theory of evolution. I mean, these things, they seem true. And yes, to say, it's an old gotcha, stupid religiousist trick to say, oh, theory of evolution, it could be false, right? So, hey, guys, yeah, it could be false. That doesn't mean it isn't true. <laughs> The, the, the scientific attitude is just simply one of we could all be wrong, but we have very good reasons to think that this is the way the world is right now. And I say that about logic and math. So I want to I want to change things slightly. Okay. Because agreeing with you is boring. <laughs> um, but you don't agree with me because you're a Willist, and I was giving an argument against Willism. Yeah, but you kept saying you didn't want to get into it. I'm like, great. Yeah. <laughs> The it, but I don't think there are any true categorical imperatives. The, the, only, the closest thing you're going to get are a bunch of hypothetical imperatives. Yeah, but you don't have a good argument for that. View. So if you, if you want to do... Uh, I have well, an no. awesome argument, but I'm not going to tell it to you. Yeah. But let me, let me stick on scientism. We should come back. We should do more <laughs> ethics stuff. We should come back to it some other episode. But back to scientism. But this wasn't an ethics thing, really. It was a reason thing. But yeah, all right, back to scientism. Well, you said it was. You said ethics and reason are the same thing. That's right. But I was. Oh, but boom. Two, 
There are two mm -hmm. sides of the same coin, so I was focusing on one side of the coin. Uh, that doesn't mean I can't talk about heads, and I'm not talking about tails by talking about heads. I mean, they're two sides of the same coin. They're Ted's. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the guy in Batman that has got the, the okay. Two-Face? <laughs> Just wanted to Holy shout out to Two-Face. Okay, yeah. Wow, shout out to Two-Face. <laughs> Okay, so so uh, you know, back to the the, the Tyson Dawkins thing. Yeah, uh, they were basically saying anybody they had any respect for. I'm gonna try the, something here. Go ahead. Okay, anybody that they had any respect for who called themselves philosophers, they just call them scientists. And I and I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking like, you know, why don't I just call myself a scientist? But but they said, in fact, what they said was that. Um, what Dawkins said, if I remember correctly, was that up until the 17th century, they were scientists. But then they became scientists without a laboratory, and that's Tyson's, DeGrasse Tyson's term, scientists. And he said this many times, that philosophers are scientists without a laboratory. Um, and, and so I think that the attitude that they're evincing is the attitude I was evincing, which is that if your work is cut off from empirical work, and if you think it's an important question whether there's water on twin earth, then you're not doing science, and that seems boring, and we want to go poke the world and see what falls out from it. And that's not an honorific thing. That says, that makes yeah. the following claim. It's boring to ask the question whether there's water on twin earth. Here's another claim. It's yeah. boring to write papers about met the metaphysics of gunk if right. we have what good empirical evidence that our world is not a gunky world. It doesn't seem interesting. Um, or it's not. It's a. It's a. It's detached from the the concerns of empirical science, and therefore doesn't seem that worth taking seriously un unless until you can show and, how it is attached. And you agree with that, right? You agree um, with that. I I can be if I can find myself in moods where I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. And when you are in those moods, uh, are you a scientist? You ever feel uh, like uh, you're a scientist? Uh, I feel like the that these terms um, are involve mostly boundary policing of a kind that I don't approve or endorse, uh -huh. and so I don't really give a shit whether I'm a scientist or not. Um, I will say that I have met lots of individuals who call themselves scientists who I don't would not want to identify with. Like I was at a conference once and talking to a scientist who shall remain unnamed, but they're genuine scientists, and they said, "Oh, you're a philosopher. What do you do all day?" And I said oh, you know, I read a lot and I write papers and I try to think about what would confirm this hypothesis and is there evidence of that sort. And then they looked at me with this kind of dumb shit look on their face and they said, that sounds like what I do all day. And I said, yeah, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so that, that, if that, if that's what you mean by scientist, then no, I'm not that. I'm not someone who thinks that I'm an arrogant asshole who thinks that only what I do is important and that what the guy in the down the hall from me isn't important. But um, if you, by scientist, mean simply that I don't think there's a lot of content or distinction between a philosopher and a scientist of, a, of the right kind, then yeah, I think that what we call philosophy ought to be interpreted as simply abstract science. Yeah, theoretical. We, theoretical science, and that what we call empirical science should just be co that concrete or empiricized science. But that if you're ever doing theory, that's, you know. So, Richard, you're a theoretical neuroscientist. I'd say a theoretical psychologist, maybe. 
Um, or yeah, you know, I have some theories about neuroscience, but neuroscientists tell me I'm all I'm wrong about that. So I don't know. But uh, I guess that's what neuroscientists tell each other too. Because you know, I, don't, I, I, I think about... that part part of what matters here is who pays you. And I'm paid by a philosophy department, so I call yeah. myself a philosopher. But you I want to disrespect your uh, employer. Well, I mean, I, I have degrees in science. I have a master's degree in physiological psychology, and I have a. Oh, hey, really? I didn't know that. Seriously? Yes. Oh man, I have new respect for you. <laughs> I mean, I worked I really in, thought you were awesome. Uh, I've worked in laboratories. I've done stuff in in them. Because um, you know, um, but 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 my but look. So the the scientist without a laboratory quip, I don't think is very interesting because you know we just we just had Bernie Bars on here, and where's his laboratory? You know, he doesn't have one. He used to have one. Um, yeah. Now he doesn't. But yeah. he reads the same papers I do, and then yeah. he writes theoretical papers about how yeah. that stuff hangs together. And so, you know, this is bringing us back to something, the Lady Man and Ross. So I, I like Lady Man and Ross, um, and I like structural realism, by the way. I, 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 would, I would defend it, um, uh, although I'm not convinced it's true, but I think that the idea that all there are relations is an interesting idea without anything being related. I think that's very cool. And uh, it, maybe it's true that that's the best way to interpret what science is telling us right now. I think that's also an interesting idea, that there are no things. And then you find these analytic metaphysicians saying, oh, well, there's got to be things. I just yeah, read a where somebody said that. John Heil, I think he was the one who said that. He's like, oh, I, I, it's very hard for me to see how the world could turn out where there aren't, is it yeah, a distinction between substance and properties? I was like, well, it's not that hard, <laughs> actually. <laughs> where are you going with this? Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, we were talking about whether you're a scientist, and then you brought up the structuralism. Yeah, the Lady Man and Ross stuff. Um, so my point was, what, what the scientist without a laboratory quip is seems to lose its meaning when you look at who calls himself a scientist. Like Bars calls himself a scientist, but where's his laboratory? Right. He seems to be doing abstract theoretical stuff. Yeah. Um, and then what the Lady Man and Ross stuff is. Uh, tying this to the more general claim about what science is, is to some people, which is the Salarzian idea that what science tries to do um, is uh, provide particular pictures of little areas of the world, and then what the philosopher does is provide the theoretical apparatus that connects those into a tapestry of how everything sort of hangs together. Um, and so that the distinction between philosopher as the, uh, on the one hand and scientist on the other hand kind of loses its meaning if that's your view. Because if you slide the scale towards philosopher, what the, what you're doing is just kind of looking at how all the sciences hang together, or you know that's right. the Solarzian idea of how things, in the most general sense of that term, hang together, yeah. in the most general sense of that term. So that's where I was going with the Lady and Rasta. But I mean, do you oppose that view that that the philosophy that what's worth calling philosophy is just this really theoretical abstract? Uh, yeah, I don't oppose that view, but I you mean, like that view. I I'm a, I, I find myself open to that view on odd-numbered Thursdays of even-numbered months. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, one thing, <laughs> since this um, since this uh, recent DeGrasse Tyson hullabaloo erupted, yeah. I was but thinking about... I, I, but see, I don't think that's a hullabaloo. I agree with DeGrasse Tyson. <laughs> but, no, but whatever you want to call it, the re recent media frenzy, whatever. But, but this recent thing that um, the people have been blogging about inspired me to go look at the CVs of some of the relevant people like yeah. uh, Dawkins, 
uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, also some other people that get dragged into this, like uh, Lawrence Krauss, Krauss, yeah, uh, Sam Harris. You know, a lot of people uh, t- been, who talk about free will have been talking about like Sam Harris and these guys. Yeah, but he, everyone um, says he didn't know shit about science. Well, it's it's interesting that how uh, you know when was the last when was the last time Dawkins did science in the sense of like. Um, research that you that is published in a, a scientific journal article. Decades. It's been decades. The last time Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, published a uh, something in a, a scientific uh, a journal article was something like 2007. What's he been doing doing since then? Has been a lot of like right scientists without a, a, a laboratory. A lot of stuff that's actually he has the he heads the Hayden Planetarium though. That's that's scientific. <laughs> That's a museum. What? Uh, it's, it's, that's okay. so. <laughs> What's that's that? science. Having a museum. Why is <laughs> nothing well, against I mean, the museum? I I, it's it's I awesome. I don't know. See, I don't want to. I don't want to go. I I I don't like this line of uh, inquiry. I don't want to impugn people's credentials. Oh, I'm um, not trying to impugn it. I'm trying to say, like, you know, uh, maybe it's just counterproductive to keep calling yourself a philosopher. Why not call yourself a scientist? The, why not call them a philosopher? Because uh, cause philosopher means someone who isn't going to have a job. It well, doesn't. No, but Sci- yeah, where I, science means respectable knowledge haver. So let's all be respectable knowledge havers. But that's exactly what. So that's exactly what the move of the. You're making us sound like intelligent design and those kinds of. I mean, it's a slipping down the slope. Um, if the, if your argument is simply let's adopt the honorific to get respectability, yeah. then we're po- then we're poli-sci, we're political scientists, we're social science. Yeah, um, right. Look at how that worked for them. It didn't work at all. They're they're called the soft sciences. People mock them. Their p-values are ridiculous. They're no way more. Uh, we our university we've got like nine hundred psychology majors and uh, fifty philosophy majors. So something's working for them. Um, breaking away from philosophy and declaring that you're a, a scientist. Yeah, a it's, cultural... called, it's called empirical empirical hypotheses that can be. I mean, the reason why psychology is popular is because Freud has been refuted, and they have things that are better, <laughs> and that's called progress. <laughs> and no one thinks that homosexuals are homosexual because of penis um, issues and their inability to conceive of themselves without having a penis. I mean, so, you know, we have better psychological um, theories that don't involve uh, categorizing sexual preferences as a mental disorder and so forth and so on. These are, that's called progress, um, and it's because yeah. of attention to empirical results, and it's not because of calling yourself a science. So if you think that, the, that if they had just be, stayed within the philosophy departments... No, I think that if, if, if they had stuck to introspection as their primary method, then calling themselves a science wouldn't have fucking mattered. They would still be as ridiculed as philosophers are. No, but suppose they, they expanded their methods. Uh, yeah, it, to it, the it empirically made, based ones. Yeah, but, didn't, but kept calling themselves philosophers and stayed within the philosophy departments. Then they would have just as much respect and philosophy would be more respected. The reason they called themselves psychologists as opposed to philosophers was because they wanted to st- get away from the idea that they were simply, you know, doing a priori shit. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, you know, these early psychologists, the introspectionist movement, we should have Eric on again someday and talk about this stuff because he's very knowledgeable about this. Um, you know, but it seems like you're, you're granting to me that there's some kind of taint that, with the label philosophy. There's a taint. 
that it's a priori and or introspective? Um, yes, that's the uh, because of the view which has been dominant for so long that the methods of philosophy are a priori. And you know, this it's Russell's fault, it's Ayer's fault, it's logical positivism's uh, legacy to the world that whenever people hear the word philosophy, they think of Descartes, they think of Hume, they think of Ayer, and they think of ads, uh, of absurd claims yeah. like does the physical world exist or not? Do I know that I'm in a dream or not? And right. um, th uh, is there water on twin earth or not? And those are boring questions, um, to be honest with you. Uh, and um, you know they're so not boring. And in fact, I like thinking about them. But if they if if they if they're they're boring in the sense that they are magnets um, and uh, they're kook attractors yep. and they can derail serious discussion and so if if you if you're only worried about skepticism I mean this is a problem I had like as an undergraduate I had a friend who's just obsessed with skepticism oh so, yeah I hate those that's, guys that's all like all and so I was studying neuroscience and I wanted and you know I wanted to know about the brain and he kept saying how, how do you know anything? Oh, so I say, oh, did you know this about the brain? Oh, how do you know anything? Well, fuck you. How do you know? But uh, look at this is interesting about um, hormones and the way that they affect. The, no, no, no. How right. do you know anything? This could be a dream. It's like, come on. Uh, can we just poke at the brain a little bit and see what it secretes and what happens? So it derails discussions. Of course, it's interesting to think about it. But and that's why you know Descartes. By the way, Descartes didn't do this at the beginning of his career. He says, look, I'm old now. In fact, at the beginning of the meditations, he says, now that I'm retired and have some free time, I'm going to go to my cabin in the woods and think about epistemology and all this other bullshit because up till now I've been too busy doing fucking science <laughs> and actually trying to dissect things and figure out how nerve impulses are transmitted and so forth. So that's the right view. Science first, then um, these questions are a priori interesting. Maybe yeah. uh, we can say some stuff about them, but if they derail us from poking at the world, that's when it's bad. And by the way, if you think that they're independent of poking at the world, then that's even worse. Um, and that's you know the positivism stuff, so that you get this 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 legacy from Russell, and it's in every introductory textbook where he says, "Ah, what is philosophy? Here's what it is. It's all the leftover, unanswerable conceptual questions that." aren't science and that as soon as something's called the science um, that gets branched off and then what's left over is this conceptualable unanswerable jelly but it's still interesting and tasty to eat because it lets you learn more about yourself and it tells you that we can't really know anything anyway um, and I just think that's like that's that's what so when people think of philosophy they think of unanswerable questions for which there can be no answer to because if there were it would be a science all that changed in 1936 here at Cambridge University where philosopher and logician Bertrand Russell was contemplating the mysteries of existence. I had spent the morning proving to myself that my chair existed so that I could sit down when it suddenly struck me. How do we really know whether it is or it is not number wang? On my desk, I saw a jug, and in a flash of inspiration, I knew I had solved it. Smashing the jug, lest anyone copy my work, I went across to the rooms of my very good friend, Wittgenstein. I opened the door, and I said to him, quite simply, that's number one. <laughs> As I remember, he cried.
So one of the one of the things that comes out of the the, the recent Tyson quotes has to do with uh, advice to young people. Yeah. And it's something like, uh, you know, look, if you're if you're uh, finishing undergrad, you're wondering what to go to grad school for, and you're and you're interested in this set of issues that are big, kind of cosmic issues, yeah. uh, the sorts of stuff that 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 this podcast is interested in. Right. Should you go to grad school for philosophy or should you go to grad school for the natural sciences? And Tyson says, look, philosophy is great. If you want to sit in your armchair and think about stuff, that's fine. However, the kind of training that you're going to get do it in grad school in philosophy is not going to really help you know, like know anything that's worth knowing. It's not going to help it the way he puts it is it's not going to help advance the physical sciences. And that's you know, true. If you get the, if you go to grad school for one of the physical sciences, now you're going to be in a position to help out. I agree. You so you would agree with that? Like if you could do it all over again, you I wouldn't have gotten a PhD in philosophy. No, I have a I have a degree in psychology and I have a concentration in cognitive science. <laughs> I didn't go and study a priori metaphysics. I went and studied science and what also philosophy. Um, but uh, you know, and you know, I know people in grad school right now who have asked themselves this question: Should I go into cognitive science or should I go into philosophy? And they sort of compromise by going to places like CUNY, where there's no real distinction between the two, to be honest with you, unless you're hanging out with Kripke, and that's a different story. Um, but you know, is Kripke doesn't really care about that stuff, and he's one of these people who thinks there's a special, you know, faculty called reason and intuition, the best kind of evidence you can have for certain claims about how the world is. And okay, so yeah, right. Um, but he, uh, uh, so I would say, yeah, if if you're if you're gonna go, if you're looking at the philosophical gourmet. <laughs> and you're wondering where should I go to grad school and you're wondering about philosophy and if you're looking at the places that are strong in metaphysics um, like it, and you want to go and study with people like cider <laughs> then that's bad <laughs> that, who cares about that and so whether a, whether Lumpel is or isn't the identical to a certain statue just like makes me sick to my stomach um, really? that people discuss that shit yeah and if it's interesting like if it's interesting to people let them go and do it so I Again, I don't like boundary policing, and I say let smart people do what they want. So yeah. if you if you want to do that, if that makes you happy, then do it. But you know, if you're you're talking about a different question, which is strategically, if you want to make the biggest impact in the world, where should you go to grad school? And I was saying something different, like where where do you get your happiness from? If your happiness comes from analytic metaphysics, then go do it and say who cares what everyone tells you. But if you're worried about like how do we know about the world, then science is what you should know about. So um, and given, uh, that's where you should study. So given a three-way choice between uh, uh, just plain old science PhD, philosophy PhD, where you're doing like analytic metaphysics, or uh, the kind of like combined thing, like you know you 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 went to you did PhD with concentration in uh, cognitive science at CUNY Grad Center. Yeah. I did my PhD in philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology at Washington University in St. Louis. So yeah. three-way choice between pure philosophy, pure science, and some kind of combination of the two. Yeah, combination. You say combination. That's but your which, in, which, in which order? So you say PhD in philosophy but specialty in science. I say more PhD in science, specialty in philosophy. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's any – that there would be no, – there's nothing – so take NYU, which is another great place for this kind of stuff, where there's not a big distinction there. So you know, the, 
Um, well, there, it depends on who you hang out with, as always. So yeah, you know, uh, if you're hanging out with people like Hartree Field, then that's a different story, maybe. Although he's interested in science as well, or you know, uh, any, so okay, whatever. So um, should you go and st study attention in in the neuro in the Center for Neuroscience? Um, and get a PhD in attentional science and then also take classes with Ned Block and think about the philosophy of attention? Or should you get a PhD in philosophy studying with Ned Block but also hang out with Marissa Carrasco and learn about attention? Which one's better? Um, I say, you know, probably working in the Carrasco lab is better um, and taking, you know, doing a minor in the science, uh, philosophy is acceptable. It's taking classes with Ned and learning about, you know, being a Hakwan as opposed to a me, I think, is a perfectly good way of doing things. Um, I, w I don't want to say one is a priority or the other. I say, where's your passion? Are you yeah. interested in poking at things? Are you interested in theorizing about things or what? And then figure out what suits you. So uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, but I was never very strategic. Look, I didn't I – went, I went to school in San Francisco because I wanted to live in San Francisco. I came out here because I was interested in science and philosophy, and this has seemed to be where they were joined most prominently together. Um, uh, so I went. To, I followed my passion, and I didn't think strategically for one second. <laughs> it worked out. It worked out okay for me, but I wouldn't recommend other people doing that. So I, <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, uh, the strategery is hard. Um, yeah. But I think that yeah, ignorance of one is as bad as ignorance of the other. But I'm, maybe this is petty, but one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is books, like writing and selling them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you call yourself a philosopher and you write a book about, say, free will versus you call yourself a neuroscientist and you write a book about free will, yeah, I think uh, all things being equal, the neuroscientist is going to sell way more books. Um, I so say it depends on the content of the book. I, no, my impression is it doesn't fucking matter what the content of the book is. Like this Sam, Harris, this Sam Harris book about free will... I haven't read it, but what I've heard about it, it sounds awful. It's like horrible undergraduate bullshit. It is. It's, it's equivalent to undergraduate bullshit, yeah. Um, where, uh, you know, I bet uh, Greg Caruso. But that's Caruso's why it's sold. Awesome. I mean, uh, by whose? Greg Caruso. I haven't read his book either. The, it's the content of the book. The point of Greg Caruso's book is that free will is an illusion and compatibilism is true higher order thought theory, everyone, that's bullshit, everyone knows that's bullshit. Uh, Harris is like, free will is real, oh wait, no, is it, he's an illusionist too? I don't know yeah. what, the, yeah. okay, then, um, yeah. Yep. then yeah, you're right, Maybe, uh, he's, just right. More he's just more famous. <laughs> so I think I'm gonna, I'm a, uh, a scientist. Yeah, but you don't have a degree in science, and you don't get paid by a science department. I have a degree in philosophy, psychology, neuroscience. You have a PNTP degree. A PNP degree. P and <laughs> PhD. <laughs> okay, I mean, look. I, oh, uh oh, there we go. Um, I should start I think, winding it down. I think uh, winding it down. Never. I think that. Um, I don't care. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. Anyway, All so right. it depends on who pays you, and it's dishonest to call yourself. I can't call myself a scientist because I'm in a philosophy department. I'm a philosopher. Do you, uh, I teach. Uh, I've t I've taught classes for our psychology department. Yeah, um, and you know some people are them. are jointly appointed. Like Ned is jointly appointed, and I think psychology. Uh, he has a professor of psychology, and he has a professor of philosophy. Brent Rogard. 
And he's sick of Brett as well, exactly. Um, what the uh -oh. fuck was that? Uh, oh, boy. I got to go is what that is. <laughs> was that Spock commanded yeah. you back to the <laughs> Starship yeah. Enterprise? Anyways, we've covered uh, we've a lot of territory. We've been going on too long. Yeah, we got to yeah. – there's a lot more to say about this, by the way. Yeah. Uh, um, so, as usual, it's a great discussion, uh, as always, we're not going to resolve this, but, uh, you know, um, I think that, uh, just for, by way of summation, um, the world is the way that it is. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and the job, but you didn't let me sum. So, the world <laughs> is the way that it is, and the way that we know about it is through science, and at this empirical science and at this juncture uh, in time I would submit that there is next to very little reason to believe that anything more than empirical science is necessary to know everything that needs to be known. I agree and that's why I'm a scientist. <laughs> well that's why I'm a philosopher uh, but then again the other half of me says yeah but you know yeah that can't be right. <laughs> but, but anyway so I, I think I think this is a hard question. Um, uh, I, I do think that the argument that Devitt gives, this the abductive argument, that um, the scientific empirical method is very well understood, in just the sense that in order to justify that p, you would need empirical results suggesting that p, some kind of connection between mind and world. We can make sense of that, uh, even if we can't give every detail of it. But, on the other hand, making sense of how we could a priori know, rash, uh, rationally know necessary facts about reality, it's very hard to make sense of how that could even work. Um, what, wh how could reality be put together in such a way that this could be true? I think that's the central puzzle of the a priori knowledge and rationalism in general. You know, and Kant gives an answer. Here's how. <laughs> it's only because we're exploring our own simulated reality. That's how it works. And, you know, that's a pretty depressing answer. Yeah. Um, but, but but I haven't heard a better answer than that, and that's why I take you know simulation and stuff like that seriously, partially because it seems to me rationalism kind of leads you that way, and you don't. That's the only good answer I've ever heard to how is a priori knowledge possible, um, and the other stuff, how is empirical knowledge possible? We know how it's possible. That's well understood. And so, in my more pessimistic view uh, modes, I I I, mean, I think that the options are either are a kind of scientism or a kind of Kantian transcendental idealism and you can't have the transcendental part so it's just oh. idealism <laughs> and those aren't great options <laughs> yeah, yeah. now now your summation my summation is um, no it isn't we, <laughs> <laughs> ah you got me <laughs> it finally worked <laughs> it finally worked it no go ahead worked. What is it? you have a last comment I don't think empirical knowledge is well understood I think science is open in a really weird way that no one has really given a satisfactory account of. Like, I don't think we know how science works. But, 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 but hold on, so that's a good point. But what, instead of well understood, what if we put better understood than a priori? Yeah. Yeah. That's the crucial claim. It's better understood how we, how we could get knowledge empirically than it is understood how we could get knowledge via solely by reason. Yeah. Yes. You would agree with that, right? I mean, because you, really, you've been having a hard time because you are, you and you really are, like, I think of someone who's scientism, like, you, you're for that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a jerk that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> exactly. I mean, it, that's not a bad thing. I when I in some if you know some of my moves, like I said, I can get myself into thinking that really the only and you know the only, uh, in, when I wrote my dissertation, I was very much in this mood. Um, but it's only because I really just don't see a way to justify this, this other stuff in in a way that's not just magic. People's philosophical origin stories are are interesting. You know, some people come to philosophy by religion. They start off like with a lot of religious interests. My my origin story goes like this: When I was a little kid, my dad would bring home these books from the library, and one of them was this Isaac Asimov book about particle physics. Yeah. So I'm like seven years old, trying to read this book, and uh, I kind of you know I was able to get through some of it, and I just decided like this: this is it. Everything is particles. And um, every like everything that like really excites my imagination is trying to figure out how that is still true, like how everything fits into that view. Yeah, it's just super interesting to me. It all comes down to that. I never have been in, interested in. I, I didn't come to this by religion, right? Like I'm not somebody who found out yeah. God doesn't exist and this still can't get over that. I started <laughs> off as a physicalist, and I'm still a physicalist. Wow, like, hardcore. Hardcore. It's just particles. See, I started off as a dualist. That's interesting. I really was super convinced of dualism. I thought it was obviously true that, and Descartes' arguments were like airtight. I was super convinced uh, of meditations when I first wow. read it. Uh, of course, I think part of that is because um, because I, I I was a scrawny, asthmatic, math obsessed computer nerd. So I didn't want to be my body. I and see. to be honest with you, like coming to grips with the identity theory has been a bit traumatic. It's, it's depressing to me yeah. to think that. I'm confined to this hunk of decaying meat. So on that happy note, I, you probably have to leave. Upload. <laughs> Up, yeah, upload, exactly, upload. So, but, but you know, I would say, just final, final note. Okay. This is where the lady, men, and raw stuff really kicks in because, you know, we don't have any reason to think there are particles anymore. So if what you yeah, mean is like fit everything into the scientific picture, no, relations, not even sets, just relations. But that, oh, the but membership not, relation. Um, other kinds of relations as well, but their claim is that reality, science is revealing a, a reality composed only of relations, not between things, but just relations. Yeah. Uh, and so particles have to go. And, you know, okay. I, think, I like that. So you could fit, would you be down with ontic structural realism or could you? Yeah. Or is it got to be particles or something extended like strings or something? I don't care if it's Lego pieces or basketballs. Like what, but yeah, <laughs> I, li I like the like ultra monism. Yeah. Yeah. So like one sort of thing. Psychism is just as good though then. Oh, fuck that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hey, I'm a scientist. <laughs> Come, on. Come on, man. You're a philosopher, dude. You're like the most you're the epitome of a philosopher. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And I think all philosophers are the epitome of scientists. So Well, fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> By the chance you it. All right, dude. I got to go. Yeah, Talk I got to go too. Later. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Space Time Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandick saying, Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Space time. Mind.